And once again, we are continuing our study on Christian warfare. Uh, Paul tells us in verse number 11 of this chapter that we must put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against all the wiles, all the tricks, all the strategies of the devil. And spiritual warfare, that is a reality for us here because we are living in a sin-cursed world. God hasn't seen fit to remove us from this world immediately after we're saved because he wants us to be salt and light in this world to people who don't know Christ as the Savior. And so we're left in this world in a place that's temporarily, and underline that word if you write it down, temporarily ruled by Satan because Satan is called the God of this world, which does not mean that he's more powerful than God, but God has allowed him a temporary amount of time in order to work in this world. And uh, as he does that, he has a measure of control upon the people of this world. And a necessary consequence of Christians living in a world that's sin-cursed and ruled by the devil is that we're going to be hated, we'll be despised, we'll have enemies that are here. Uh, The people of this world are still under the control of Satan. They owe their allegiance to him. And Satan does not want us to be talking with and and influencing and encouraging his subjects to come to know Christ as the Savior. So he fights against us. And in order for us to fight in spiritual warfare, we have to be prepared to be the salt and light of the world. And we need the protection that God has provided for us in order that we might fight the enemy. So this is what Paul is telling the Ephesian people in chapter 6. And it's the same message that God has for us. He tells them to put on the whole armor of God, and we need exactly the same thing today. Well, as we examine spiritual warfare, we're looking at the uh, different pieces of armor. Uh, Paul uh, uses the pieces of armor that a Roman soldier would wear, and he makes a spiritual application to these different things. So he talks about the belt, and he speaks of the breastplate, and the sword, and the shield, the shoes, and the helmet, and he applies a spiritual truth to each of those. Last week, we talked about the belt of truth, and loins that are girt about with the truth. And this week, we're going to talk about the second piece of armor, which is the breastplate of righteousness. So let's stand as we read God's Word tonight. Our, our text verse this evening is verse number 14 of Ephesians 6, but we're going to read starting at verse number 13 and read down to verse 17. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word, and I thank you for each one who's come out tonight. Lord, we we praise your name for your people who want to hear your Word and want to apply your Word and learn how to be strengthened against the devil who fights against us. Help in this message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our theme tonight is in that 14th verse, the last part of the verse. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. And then this part is the part we're going to talk about. And having on the breastplate of righteousness. Last week, we did talk about truth. And a Christian must have truth as a belt that holds his armor in place and girds up his clothing so he's not encumbered uh, by the things of this world. 
Now, I believe that when Paul was speaking about truth, he was talking about the entire or the whole complement of Christian doctrine that we find in the Scriptures. And in our discussion of truth, we found out that there are a lot of people who have a difference of opinion about what truth that Paul actually means. Some people say that what that means is you are to be a truthful person. You're to be totally honest. You're always to speak the truth. And I think that that is a characteristic that every Christian needs. Uh, every every uh, Christian needs to be a truthful person. But I don't think that's what Paul is talking about there. I believe he's, he's telling us that we're to be people of the Bible. We're to learn the doctrines of God's Word so, so that we can defend ourselves. When anyone comes to us with a, with a false doctrine or, or a false opinion of the Word of God, that we're able to, to teach the truth of the Word of God against those who pervert the gospel. Well, just as there is an argument over what Paul meant about the truth in the first part of that verse, there's also a difference of opinion about what Paul means by righteousness. What is the breastplate of righteousness, and what particular kind of righteousness is Paul talking about? Well, we're going to answer that question uh, in the next two weeks as we study this. But before we take up that part of it, I, I just want to explain for just a moment about this breastplate. Now, Paul is using a physical thing here to refer to a spiritual thing. And so it's good for us to understand why he brings in the breastplate. Now, he's using an example that the people of his time would very well identify with. They'd seen many Roman soldiers in their towns and their villages, and they were familiar when Paul talks about a breastplate. They'd seen that on the Roman soldiers. Well, what the breastplate is, as you can well imagine, is a, is, a, is a plate or an armor that covers the entire torso of the body. Uh, sometimes it was made of very tough leather. Uh, it would have horses' hooves that were sewn into it or uh, animals' horns that were sewn into it. Sometimes it could be made all of metal, and then other times it might be like a coat of mail or woven metal. But the complete torso is the idea here because uh, naturally, uh, as we all know, there are vital organs that are contained in this part of the body. The abdominal cavity has vital organs for our survival. We have the heart and the lungs here, the liver, the stomach, the intestines, and all of those things are protected by the soldier's breastplate. Now, these areas are, are of particular interest to Paul because the ancient people in Paul's time believed that in these areas were contained the seat of man's affections, man's conscience and man's will, his desires. All of them emanated from this particular part of the body. You know, it's sort of like when you get worried about something and, and you, you, you get all upset about things, you feel it down in this part of your body. You get nervous and you get upset. I mean, even today when we talk about being upset about something, we'll say, well, my stomach is tied up in knots. Well, the people believe that here's where those emotions actually started from. So in a physical sense, the vital organs have to be protected. And in the spiritual sense, whatever it is, whatever it is in man that, that, that uh, concerns his emotions, his will, his desires, his affections, these are the things that control a man. So whatever it is that controls the man, that is something that needs to be covered up with righteousness. But as I said earlier, there are people who have disagreement about what does he exactly mean by righteousness. Well, there are actually four types of righteousness that we're going to talk about. And I want to deal with that tonight. Four different types of righteousness that, that, uh, that, that are proposed here as Paul real meaning. Now, actually, we're only going to get to three and a half. We're not going to get to that fourth one tonight and not even finish with the third one. But we're going to talk some about this this evening. First of all, the types of righteousness. 
I think that everybody here, most of you clearly understand why that we use the King James Version as our preferred translation of Scripture. I'm not somebody who believes that uh, the King James Version is the only version that you can ever read, but I do believe that it's the very best translation that we have, and whenever there is a disagreement between translations, I really do think that we always ought to prefer the King James. Now, I believe that the King James is better for many reasons, and I don't have time to go into all of those reasons tonight and give you defense of the King James Bible, but I do want to mention one of these that I think is pertinent to this discussion tonight, and that is the method of translation of the King James Bible. The King James is translated by what you call verbal equivalency. And what that simply means is, uh, as the translators translated out of the, uh, out of the original languages, they went word by word, as they translate it. They translate one word right after another word. Now, the modern translations today are translated by what you call dynamic equivalency. And what that means is it's not word by word, but they take sections of Scripture or phrases of Scripture, and they try to uh, extract from that the meaning of what they think the author intended. Now, you can well imagine that if you're not translating word by word, that you're going to end up putting some interpretation into Scripture. You're going to make some commentary on Scripture when you're actually doing the translation. And that's what many of the modern translations have done. So, in other words, in modern translation, the commentary sneaks into the text. And so you can come here to Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verse number 14, and you come to this phrase, breastplate of righteousness, and instead of leaving that alone... What the translators will do, they will substitute what they think that Paul meant by that phrase. Now, for example, in the New Century Version, it states it this way. So stand strong with the belt of truth tied about your waist and the protection of right living on your chest. God's Word translation says it this way. So then, take your stand, fasten truth around your waist like a belt, put on God's approval as your breastplate. So in the New Century Version, the breastplate of righteousness becomes protection of right living, and in God's Word translation, it comes out as God's approval. Now, that's the problem with dynamic equivalency. Now, many of translations uh, are not as bad as the two that I've just mentioned, but what we really need to do is leave commentary to commentators and leave translations to translators and let them do simply that. So there we see a danger. So you can see then... In those newer translations that they've already decided what what that breastplate of righteousness ought to mean. So what are the different types of righteousness? Well, let's talk about these. The first one is individual righteousness. Is this what Paul means? Is he talking about individual righteousness? Now, actually, that's the interpretation that we just read from those uh, two different translations. This means right living. It means being a clean living person, a person who lives in holiness. And I absolutely do believe that we ought to be holy people. God commands that we live in holiness. And a Christian that is not a moral person and doesn't live a good moral life, he can never expect that he's ever going to be able to defeat the enemies in his Christian life. Your lifestyle is very important to God. It's essential uh, in your effectiveness and the way that you can witness to people, the influence that you have on others. And also, the lifestyle that you live also is for your own peace of mind because that's where you get your communion and you get your fellowship with God. And so if there's no holiness in your life, if there's, if there's no right living there, then you can't have fellowship with God. 
So certainly, the Bible does tell us that we ought to have personal holiness. But I don't believe that's what Paul's talking about. In fact, any time that you go up against Satan with your goodness, and you come up to him with your chest stuck out, and you try to, uh, try to protect yourself against those piercing, fiery darts that the devil sends, you'll find out that your own righteousness and your goodness does not afford very good protection. And you know why it doesn't? Because the devil knows exactly how to break that down. He knows the weakest parts of you, and no matter how good that you think you are, there are still parts of you that don't get covered up, and Satan is able to attack them. When he starts to compare you to other Christians, you'll find out that you don't stand up very well. You start reading about what many Christians have gone through in the past and how they stood for the Lord and the trials that they went through. They've been through trials that you've never seen before. They were giants of the faith and they, were, they knew the Scriptures, they studied them, they had great knowledge. And you find out that there are many Christians that have far surpassed your abilities. And you'll find out very quickly, you don't measure up very well to some of the Christians in the past or even some today. So your deficiencies will start to shine through. Well, I believe that Paul very well understood that that kind of righteousness is not sufficient protection. If you go on over to the book of Philippians, you'll find that if there's anyone there uh, who had reason to trust his personal integrity, it was the Apostle Paul. He was the consummate Hebrew. He says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And he said, as touching the law, there's no blame in me. I am a blameless person. Now, of course, Paul is there talking about what he was before he became a Christian. But after he met Christ, he certainly didn't become less of a holy person. He he continued in holiness, was even more of a holy person now that he was a Christian. But he knew that even that was not sufficient. And so he goes on in Philippians chapter 3 to say that he needed the righteousness of God, which is by faith. So I don't believe that Paul is talking in Ephesians 6 about about protection that's afforded by your personal righteousness. Now let me make two points about this. Obviously, when we talk about, if if it even could be considered anyway to be personal righteousness, we know that we're not talking about self-earned righteousness. Paul cannot be talking about that. Now that's the way that most people try to come to God. They think that they're good people and they're going to be righteous by doing good things. And sometimes when we read the Scriptures, we think that that people like the Pharisees, that that they were very bad people. The Pharisees in Jesus' time, we think they're not not good people, but in fact, they were very good people. They were holy people. Uh, They were righteous people. They tried to keep the law of God. Morally, they were good people. And talk about Scripture, they knew far more Scripture than anybody in this room knows. They probably, I'm sure they know a lot more than I know about Scripture. You remember that... uh, rich young ruler that came to Jesus and asked him about eternal life? He said, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus went through the commandments with him. And do you know what that gentleman said? He said, well, I've already done all those things. He said, I've kept all those things from the time I was just a youngster, so what more do I need? He wasn't a bad person. He was a good person. But yet he was still far away from the righteousness that God requires. And the reason is he was measuring himself by the wrong standard. He was trying to keep his eyes on other Pharisees to do what they did and become a good little Pharisee and a good righteous person, but he could not reach the goal that God requires. God's standard is always perfection. And there's not one single person that will ever get to heaven without perfection. 
So Paul's not talking here about self-earned righteousness. So it's not self-earned righteousness, but I want you to notice also that this is not self-imposed righteousness. Now that first one, the self-earned righteousness, that's what people do to, to be saved. It never works because it never achieves God's standards, and it won't work as a breastplate of righteousness because the devil's, when he's shooting fiery darts, that's like shooting through whipped cream. So that's not going to stop him. Then after you get saved, here's the thing too, neither can you depend, you can't depend on self-earned righteousness, but neither can you depend on self-imposed righteousness as a means of protection. Now that's what various fundamental groups try to throw up as their armor. What they try to do is to impose a certain standard on people, get everybody to follow a proper set of rules, and now that will work for righteousness. Usually, it works for hypocrisy. Now, let me make my position clear about this. I am not opposed to good moral standards. I'm not opposed to men looking like men and women looking like women. I'm not opposed to godly dress and godly habits, but I am opposed in trying to make those things a means to holiness. I've been around much too long not to realize that the most hypocritical and most judgmental people come out of groups that hammer people with constant rules. Now, what happens with rule keepers is they always find a way to make exceptions to the rules when it suits them. Let me give you an example of this. I'm not going to mention any names, but recently there's been a lot of talk around, uh, around fun, among the fundamental groups about insisting that Christians ought to boycott Disney. They said it's, it's not right for Christians to watch Disney movies. Don't go to the Disney theme parks. And they say stay away from Disney because there's something there that Walt Disney did or did not do. I don't even know what it is, but they're encouraging people boycott Disney. But on the other hand... These same fundamentalists see nothing all at all wrong with going to a ball game where there's cursing and swearing, people are pouring beer down the back of your neck, and there's a bunch of half-naked cheerleaders dancing around. They don't have any problem with that. Or sending their kids uh, on an activity to a theme park where the very same thing goes on. Now, am I saying it's wrong to go to a, to a ball game or it's wrong to go to a, to a theme park? I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying this, that when you start throwing out rules, you better be careful that you don't have some tinge of impropriety in your life. Watch out for that. And many of these people end up becoming hypocrites because they always find the exception to the rule when it involves something that they really want to do. Here's what you find out. If you dig inside many of these fundamental circles and ministries, you'll find underneath it all that there is depravity lurking. The same people that'll get out their ruler and measure to see if a girl's dress is a quarter inch above her knees are the same ones that many of the pastors are involved with dating their secretaries, involved in affairs with their secretaries and other women in the church. You don't know how many people that I've known personally that were rule keepers. I mean people that demanded holiness by keeping rules and they were the very ones that got themselves in a terrible moral compromise. You can't put that on as your righteousness. So you see what I'm saying here? When you attempt to throw up that kind of a shield as your moral quality and expect that the devil's going to turn tail and, and hide, you're fooling yourself. The devil's got your number. He knows exactly how to get you. So Paul's not talking about moral integrity. He's not speaking about self-earned righteousness. He's ta not talking about self-imposed righteousness. 
And surprisingly, there are many, many people who pick up this passage of Scripture and they preach from this personal holiness. Well, you need personal holiness. There is no doubt about that. You must absolutely live as a holy person. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Personal or individual righteousness, that is not the meaning of this. Now, secondly, there is infused righteousness. What is infused righteousness? We have to be careful sometimes when we use these kind of terms because uh, not always do they mean the same things to all people. But generally, when you talk about infused righteousness, that's the belief of Roman Catholicism. It involves part truth and part error, as most of Roman Catholic doctrines do. But uh, the Roman Catholic believes, he agrees that Christ's righteousness is necessary for a believer. He's not going to deny that. that. He believes that Christ's righteousness is instilled into a person when they believe, and then that righteousness is maintained by good works. So the instilled righteousness becomes his inherent righteousness, And what he does with that righteousness becomes his own responsibility. And so whether or not a person remains saved depends on what he does with this righteousness that's been infused into him. Now, to speak of it another way, what the Roman Catholic is actually saying, that a man is justified both by faith and by his works. And in reality, what that actually translates into is what we just talked about a moment ago. It's really self-righteousness. So a person is justified by his self-righteousness. And the fact, that, the fact that the righteousness originated with Christ makes no difference at all to the Roman Catholic because that's not the thing that counts. It's the moral ability of that person to maintain the righteousness which becomes his justification. Well, that's wholly anathema to the Bible. And if you want to know why there was a Protestant Reformation, that is the exact reason. After studying the Scriptures and, and being gripped by God... Martin Luther finally came to the same conclusion that Baptists have been preaching for centuries, and that is that man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Now, just like Paul saw something else was needed, that moral rectitude was not enough, Martin Luther discovered the same thing. And so he discovered that being a a monk and being a hermit and self-deprivation and self-flagellation, that's not a path to God. You're not going to get to God that way because it doesn't produce what God requires. Again, remember this. Nothing short of perfection is what God requires. That's God's standard. And so as long as there's a sinful nature in man, he'll never reach that plateau of righteousness that will be acceptable by God. So Paul is definitely not talking about infused righteousness because in that sense it doesn't even exist. Christ's righteousness does not become our inherent righteousness. Our inherent righteousness, as good as it may be, it is always flawed. And just reference again what I said a moment ago about self-imposed righteousness. It's not good enough. Now let's go on to the third type of righteousness, and I believe that this is what Paul is talking about in this verse. The third type of righteousness is imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness is the real battleground between false Christianity and true Christianity. Now, we just noted the Roman Catholic idea of the infused righteousness, and what that actually is is a perversion of Christ's imputation of righteousness. Well, what is imputed righteousness? Well, the first thing we have to deal with is that word imputed. What does that mean? Well, it's a word that actually comes from the financial world, and what it means is to charge something to an account. 
And we would just say, charge it. When my wife goes shopping, they ask her, will that be cash or charge? And she's very theologically astute, so she whips that card out of her purse and she says, impute it to this account. What she actually means, of course, is charge it to this account. Now, a moment ago here, we're talking about inherent righteousness. What is our true inherent righteousness? Well, we don't have the inherent righteousness that God requires, but we do have inherent righteousness. So what kind of righteousness is that? Isaiah 64, verse 6 tells us, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Now, I don't want to be uncouth tonight, but I think that for us to understand this, we need to know what uh, the writer here, what God is saying by filthy rags. What that refers to, it's a term that refers to the dressings that a woman uses during menstruation. And so this is what the writer's saying. That's the best that we have to offer God. In his sight, that is the very best that we have to offer. Now I want you to notice here that Isaiah is writing to God's people. He's not writing to not writing to Gentile people. All Gentile people are in the same boat. But there he's talking to God's chosen people. Now let's go back for a minute to when I was speaking about uh, Paul in Philippians. And there we can make a stark comparison. Take your Bible. Turn just a few pages over to Philippians chapter 3. Hopefully when we get do, done with Ephesians that Philippians is going to be the next study. But notice what Paul says in chapter 3. And I'll start reading with verse number 3. He says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he hath, he hath uh, whereof he may trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So if we take Isaiah chapter 64 and we compare that to what Paul says here, he would be saying that being the best Pharisee alive, having kept all of God's laws, following God with zeal, with the utmost fervor that he could possibly produce, being the best morally righteous person that he could possibly be, taking all of that and offering everything that he was to God, it's still nothing but filthy rags. Now I want you to turn back to Romans chapter 3. And uh, everybody knows these verses, but I want you to think about this as we, we think about what, what uh, Paul just talked about here with moral righteousness in view. What does he write here? Well, in Romans chapter 3, in verse number 10, he says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. 
and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. What that tells us is that the inherent righteousness of man is absolutely worthless. It'll never count for anything in God's sight. It will never bring favor with God. Now, Paul's self-example, his self-example is the very basis of this argument. It is his argument. He says, if you think that you're good, look at me. I'm better than anybody. I'm better than you all as far as the world is concerned. Look how many things that I've done. Look how I've tried to live for God. Look, look at all the things that I know. And then he says, with all of that, if anybody could trust in the flesh, I should be able to trust in the flesh. But he comes to the conclusion that all of it's worthless. And then he applied another word that we haven't used yet very much, but it further seals the worthlessness of our righteousness and tells us what it truly is. He says it's nothing but dung. When we were in Jerusalem, we went through the dung gate to get into the city of Jerusalem. I don't need to tell you what they took out at the dung gate. And that's what Paul says that our righteousness is like. It's like dung. It's worthless, despicable. It's defiling. So the conclusion here, something more is needed. My righteousness will not do. My self-imposed righteousness, that won't work. That's not enough to get me saved. I need something much, much more substantial, not only to be protected from, from Satan as my enemy. That's bad enough to have Satan as your enemy. But you know something? But you really need protection from, above all other things, you need protection from the wrath of God. And so you, before you even think about getting to fighting the devil, you've got to worry about, is the wrath of God on me? And this is what Paul is talking about. Before you can ever put on the Christian armor, you have to be protected from the wrath of God. And so what do I need? I need the imputed righteousness of Christ. I need something that I cannot provide. I need something that comes from someone else, from another. I need perfect righteousness. Only perfect people get into heaven. And so how do I get perfect righteousness? Only from Jesus Christ. Because he's the perfect one who gives his righteousness to me. Now, I'm going to stop right there, and uh, next week we're going to come back to this. I've got a lot to cover as we talk about righteousness. So we're going to come back and talk about it a little bit more and help us to better understand what Paul means here by righteousness when he says, put on this breastplate of righteousness. And I hope you've already got the picture tonight. It can't be anything that you provide. It has to be given by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've been able to spend together tonight. I ask you, Lord, that you would really lay it upon our hearts an understanding that we really can't do anything to gain favor. And Lord, you don't love us because of things that we do. You love us because you are love. Love is inherent in you. And you love us because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been imputed to us by the faith that we have in him. Thank you, Lord, for this lesson tonight. Bless our people in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.